The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Two Bibles. Before we read, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. May they be the guide that lights our path. In your name we pray. Amen. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. So we're moving on in a series on heaven and hell, mainly heaven, that we're calling Are We There Yet? And this is a a title that's kind of inspired by, uh, you know, those long road trips that you go on and, you know, there's kids in the back and they say, you know, about 10 minutes into a six-hour drive, Mom, are we there yet? Right? We know it. We've all heard it, and we've probably all said it. Right? Because road trips can be long, and we can lose track of where we are in them and when the next bathroom break is. And so this series is kind of giving us a bit of a reality check of, okay, where are we in our journey? Um, we can so quickly lose sight of the journey that we are on and where it is taking us that, that we can, we can, you know, gain a lot from stopping and asking the question, okay, are we there yet? And what does there look like? Where is this journey of life taking us? And so first week in this series, we looked at the Garden of Eden as heaven on earth, right? As, as, uh, heaven as God's space and earth as human space, overlapping perfectly. Okay, we talked about how, how um, God created us to be in this place, that, that, that we were made for this type of intimacy, this type of relationship with God where they overlapped perfectly. But then sin happened, right? And it ripped these two spaces apart. And so, uh, you know, when, when, when Adam and Eve, and there's that photo that I showed of in that storybook Bible of them walking out of the garden, right? That, that is the separation of God's space and human space. And there, and then in the Old Testament, we see pockets of it, right? Where, where God's space and human space do overlap, but only for a short period of time until Jesus. And we see Jesus is living and breathing heaven on earth, and he has a tremendous impact on how we experience the Father. He brings heaven to earth. 
And a man that experienced that transformation was Zacchaeus. And we talked about him two weeks ago, that he was a tax collector who wanted to see this amazing teacher, this heaven-on-earth person. And that Zacchaeus was actually a lot like us, right? He, he was a person who, who needed to be, was looking to be affirmed, to be loved, to be accepted. And, and he looked for that in all the wrong places until he found Jesus. And then he realized, this is it. This is what I've been looking for my whole life. When Jesus said to him, I'm coming over to your house to eat. Right? That, was, that was their version of saying, I, I affirm you. I love you, and I'm coming over to your place to share a meal with you. And that changed his life. That changed how he acted. And, and he showed us that by, what, responding above and beyond what the law required of him. Right? He gave back to the poor four times what was required of him. Half his money he gave to the poor. This was, this was a sign that he wasn't just obeying God's law. He was giving himself to Jesus. It wasn't a transaction. It was surrender, right? And so Jesus proclaims boldly to Zacchaeus, today, yes, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation is our journey back to God. It's a journey. And we can often lose our place in this journey. What does it look like six months later for Zacchaeus? Right when his life starts to get hard again, when when the honeymoon stage with Jesus is over and it begins to be a little bit difficult, right? Where, where maybe his friends are questioning him and saying, "Why did you even you know give your allegiance to this guy in the first place? He's made you give up everything that was important to you before you met him. Like what what's going on here? Or or maybe you know his his singleness ha- has caused him to to look at and desire women over Jesus and he's he's up and against the the brokenness in his life that's coming to the surface and it gets hard. Right? Salvation is a journey back to God, but it often brings up a lot of difficult things in the process. Isn't it the same for us, church? Amen. So what is salvation? being saved mean for us? Is it just saying a prayer, being baptized, doing profession of faith, and then going back to our lives as normal? Or is it different? Is it a constant challenge of living a new life through Christ in the midst of our grief, our pain, our sadness, our sin, our shame, our guilt of saying, Jesus invites us into something different. And so today we're going to look at what does that different look like? What is the journey back to God characterized by? And we're focusing on a words by a guy named Paul who wrote a letter to, this is the book of Romans, right? He's writing a letter that's outlining uh, for the Christians in Rome, what, what is the gospel? And for the first 11 chapters, he's explaining the mercy of God, right? That through Jesus Christ, by grace, we are given salvation, right? We are made right with God. We are saved. But then this passage here acts as like a peanut butter sandwich, right? So the first 11 chapters are the top of the bread, and then then we reach the transition point, which is the, the peanut butter, before we reach the second half of the book, which is then Paul applying the gospel to 
real lives. And this middle section here is, is the hinge point. And Paul says to us of what, what we're called to do in this journey back to God. What is it characterized by? What are the things that are constantly going to be coming up? And so two things that we're going to look at this morning. Two points instead of three, which means it's a shorter sermon. One is taking off the world, and two is Jesus. Taking off the world and putting on Jesus. So first, take off the world. In episode six of Star Wars, called The Force Awakens, we meet a character named Rey. And Rey is a young, innocent scavenger girl who spends her days rooting through an old Imperial Star Destroyer to find anything of value that she can flip for food. Right? She's lonely. She's hopeless, but she's waiting, right? She's longing, and she's searching. She desperately wants her world to be different. We learn fairly quickly that she's waiting for her parents to return. And she's waiting and hoping that, that sometime someone is going to come into her life and tell her that everything that she thinks that it is, is different that the veil will be lifted, and that everything sad will come untrue, that she wasn't forgotten about, that she wasn't abandoned, that she isn't worthless. And her journey through the three Star Wars films that she's a part of is, is not primarily actually, and this is, this is my view, so you can, you can disagree, but is not primarily about her and her role in saving the galaxy. But her, her in these movies is discovering who she really is. You know, when, whenever Ray meets somebody who, who doesn't know who she is in these movies, she, they say, you know, who are you? And she responds often with three words. I don't know. And so she goes on a journey of devoting herself to the resistance of learning about the Force and about what, what she is and where she comes from. And, and fi she finds herself in this journey having to constantly rid herself of the baggage that she carries from her past, about the lies that, she, that have been steeped into her from her life on Jakku. Ray shows us that to discover our true identity as people on a journey the journey of salvation, the journey back to God, we, we need to then do the same thing that she's doing. We need to enter into the tough work of figuring out what is our true identity. And that takes exposing ourselves and facing our true selves and our deepest flaws. We too believe the lies, if we really sit down and think about it, that we are not loved, that we don't have hope, that we've been abandoned, or that we're not good enough, or that we should be ashamed of how we act. We are on a journey of ridding ourselves of the baggage that is of this world, taking it off. The good news is that we worship a God who actually specializes in this area. He is a God who makes broken things new. He makes dead things alive. 
And Paul has spent the last 11 chapters in this letter telling us that in Christ we are given life and hope that addictions won't win in the end, that anxiety and depression don't have the final word, and that our sin no longer has control in our lives. But we do have to go on this journey. The salvation journey is to become different people. And so Paul begins this passage by saying, what what do we have to do? We have to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Our whole bodies, not just part of them, our whole bodies as a sacrifice to God. And to somebody who's been uh, raised in Jewish thinking, the idea of a living sacrifice is very contradictory. Sacrifices don't live because that's the point. Sacrifices die because they represent something. They represent our sin. They represent us needing to give ourselves to God. And so what Paul is is getting at here is that this is not just a one-time thing. Offering ourselves as a living sacrifice is our daily work as a Christian. It is an ongoing process. It's uh, characterized quite well, I think, in in a prayer that um, a church father named St. Francis prayed, and it's pretty famous, and he says this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled, but as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It's in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it's in dying that we are born to eternal life. The ongoing daily sacrifice of seeking to love rather than be loved. Seeking to console as to be consoled. To give rather than receive. This is what Paul is calling us to do in view of God's mercy. How do we become these types of people? We make the difficult choice of choosing a posture of repentance over stubbornness and hardness. Repentance means turning around. Right? Our souls are on a journey. This is, this is true of every person in the world, we're either moving closer towards God or further away from him, right? And, and, and what repentance is, is repentance literally means to turn around. It's to stop moving in the direction that you're moving in, to think twice, and to turn around to the other side. Repentance is probably the scariest thing that we do as human beings. Often we think that if we, you know, if we, if we bring things to light, if we turn around and say, no, that's not 
the way that I was that I that I worship God and move the other direction that this is actually gonna gonna harm us. Because it causes us to put our trust fully in God and take us outside of our control. Oftentimes we're met with, I can't do that. That's way too much. If I do that, my life will be over. One of my favorite uh, authors, C.S. Lewis, uh, talks about this process. And he calls it the process of surrender. And it's what Christians call repentance. He says, now repentance is no fun at all. It is something much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we've been training ourselves in for over a thousand years. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a certain kind of death. Who wants to sign up for that? Because often when we come, come, when we come in, in eye to eye with the process of surrendering our lives to God, of offering our lives as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing to Him, it's, it, it may seem like we're actually dying. Like it's not a living sacrifice, like it's a dying sacrifice. But actually the opposite of tr- is true. Because the person who does the difficult work of, of continually confessing and repenting, their souls become a mine. When, when, pe- when we, people mine for metals, right, they gather a whole bunch of mixed metals, right? It's got some good stuff and some bad stuff. And the way that they get rid of the bad stuff and keep the good stuff is by turning up the temperature, right? Of burning the bad stuff away. And when at, at the end of this purification process, when the temperature is, is raised up, which could be, we could call that repentance, right? When, when we expose who we really are to God and to each other, we burn away the stuff that isn't helpful, and we're left with the stuff that we want. This is the process of exposing our true selves to God. It may seem like we're burning ourselves alive, but in fact, we're, we're, we're becoming the people God intended us to be. Heavenly people. What's the alternative to this, though? What is the opposite of being a person that's characterized by repentance? Well, to protect ourselves to hide the things that we're ashamed to share with other people, to push them down and suppress them, and to take our journey into our own hands. And C.S. Lewis, again, warns us about this. He says to us, to love is to be vulnerable. And giving our lives to God is, is essentially loving God. To love is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure to keep it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket and co- or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, dark, motionless, safe, airless, it will change. Right? The, it will keep moving in a direction, but it will change you. 
It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Exposing ourselves, taking off the world, is a process that makes us vulnerable. But but true repentance leads to change. And it's the, it's the way that we become heavenly people now. True repentance is giving to God that which we have no power to change. And that's why the second point is so crucial to this conversation on repentance, because that's not the only part in this. The second thing is we have to live out of Jesus. Because the story of our culture is that to get the power to change ourselves or to become a different person, we need to look inside of ourselves and be that change. We have to, we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, change the way we think, change the way we act. But even in a movie like Star Wars, we see Rey, right? She can't, she can't do this on her own. She can't face who she is on her own. She needed the force She needed a power from outside of herself to help her become a different type of person. And if she would look back on her life, how she ended up with the resistance, how she ended up learning the ways of the Force, and how how it made it it possible for her to, to actually figure out who she was, she would tell you that she couldn't have done it on her own. Deep down we know And it's expressed in characters like Ray. We can't do this work of changing ourselves on our own. We can't become who we we desire and long to be by ourselves. We need Jesus. And Jesus tells us a different story. See, in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, we, we need a Savior who can change us because he became like us. The gospel says that Jesus Christ became a human being. The gospel says that Jesus, though he did not sin, he became sin. And so we can be a living sacrifice. We can offer our bodies continually out of Jesus Christ because he bore our sin and shame once and for all and became a sacrifice for us. And he's earned something that we could not on our own a perfect record before God and Father Almighty, the only one it really matters to. Finally, we we have a power in Jesus Christ, in our Savior, and through the power of his Holy Spirit that, that is he who began a good work in us will see it through to completion, and we know that these words are true. See, this frees us to up the temperature to enter into the journey of salvation towards God, which is a journey of purifying ourselves through repentance and belief in him. As one commentator I read this week put it, Christians can adjust their way of thinking about everything in accordance with the newness of their life in the spirit. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Adjusting this way of thinking is exactly what Paul talks about when he says that we will be able to test and approve what God's will is. What he's saying is not that we will be able to discern 
what God's will is, but that we will be able to know how it is he wants us to live. The journey back to God is difficult, but it's beautiful. Because we discovered that the more of the world we take off, the more Christ clothes us in his grace and his love. Right? The more we dig in, the more he pushes back. The more we die, the more beautiful our life in him becomes. So how do we begin to think about it? Tim Keller gives us, I think, a helpful set of questions that may provide some groundwork to enter into uh, what Paul's talking about in this passage. He offers us three different questions, and they're good for gauging the temperature in, in our lives and how we experience God on this journey back to him. Some of these questions may wake us up a little bit. So, question number one. Is there evidence of God's presence in your life? Do you ever spend time to ask yourself this question? To think about it? Maybe write it down. How clear and vivid is your assurance and certainty of God's forgiveness and fatherly love? To what degree is that real to you now? Because if it's not real, if the Father's love is not real to us, how are we able to bring our true selves to him? Are you having any particular seasons of sweet delight in God? Do you really sense his presence in your life? Do you really sense him giving you his love? Question number two. Is there evidence of Scripture changing you? Scripture is the word of God that is alive. It is a double-edged sword that cuts through us to convict us of our sin, to draw us close to him and purify us. So have you been finding Scripture to be alive and active? And if not, why not? Have you talked to somebody about it? Are you finding certain biblical promises extremely precious and encouraging? Which ones and why? Are you finding God's calling you or challenging you to something through the word? In what ways? Is there evidence of a growing appreciation for God's mercy? Are you finding God's grace more glorious and moving now than you have in the past? Right? Is, this, is this something that's becoming more beautiful to you the older you get? Are you conscious of a growing sense of evil in your heart and in response a growing dependence on and grasp of the preciousness of God's mercy? I was met with these questions this week. And they're really good to think about and to ask and to ponder because they get at the heart of what the journey back to God is, what it means to be heavenly people now. And that is, what is the type of person I am becoming? How is God active in my life right now, making me into that person? Am I responding to him? Or ignoring him. We are met with the assurance of Jesus Christ that in the gospel, 
He who began a good work in us will see it through to completion. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and who loves